0: Being an entrepreneur is not about making money. That's a question I ask to entrepreneurs that I meet. right? And if they're doing it for the money, boy, you're making the wrong bet. Don't do it for the money because it's is a hard road. I think it has to be about following your passion. If you want to do something and you see a possibility that doesn't exist, you know that something can be done. And when you have that, that's the reason, motivation to have it. You find that in yourself and you find that in a good business and a market that will support the investment that you're going to need. That is the reason why to go and start a company. When you see that you have a vision that nobody else has, and something unique that you can bring to the world.
1: Welcome to Fall Line Field Notes, a podcast that explores the intersection of technology with agriculture and food. We're your hosts, Eric O'Brien and Clay Mitchell. Today's guest is Jorge Harad, VP of Automation and Autonomy at John Deere. He took that position after the company he founded and was CEO of, Blue River Technology, was acquired by Deere. Jorge is an electrical engineer by background, earning his bachelor's in Peru and then moving to the US to get his master's in EE from Stanford. He also earned his MBA as a Sloan Fellow at Stanford Business School.
2: Jorge then spent 14 years at Turnbull Navigation in engineering and business roles, which is where he and I initially crossed paths in the early days of RTK GPS. In 2011, Jorge founded Blue River Technology with the goal of leveraging computer vision, machine learning and precise spraying to vastly improve weed control and cropping systems. In this interview with Jorge, we discuss recent and future applications of machine intelligence to farming and the experiences that we've shared in the field that inform our engineering direction. We began the interview with Jorge talking about our long shared history and the simultaneous beginnings of Blue River Technologies and Fall Line Capital. We've been friends for over 20 years, Jorge. I can remember the first time you stepped into the dairy barn in Iowa that we've converted into a workshop because your presence carries such a brightness of character and an engineer's sense of purpose. And I know you're regarded as a great collaborator, and I've certainly experienced that firsthand. So many of those early collaborations were really centered around what RTK GPS brought to agriculture. You know, Where would we be without RTK today? Clay?
0: Eric, thank you so much for inviting me. This is a pleasure. Thank you for that introduction. Uh, Clay, your words are incredibly generous. And I remember also vividly going to your farm uh, close to Waterloo and talking with another innovator and person that appreciates the technology and takes the time to understand it and map where it's going. That's always been a hallmark of our conversations. And uh, wow, yeah, RTK, that brings me to another time, another part of my life that I enjoyed quite a bit. GPS has had a profound impact in agriculture and in precision agriculture. Not only does it give us the ability to make those rows rate, reduce overlap, and just go more efficiently over the fields that we need to go, but it gives us a new insight into data and what we're doing in every single area. So a lot of the precision agriculture movement, the variable rate technology, section control, technologies that have tremendous amount of payback and future, are pinned in GPS. I think that where we would be without GPS is way behind in profitability, way behind in sustainability for our farmers. It would be a place that I wouldn't want to go back to.
2: Right. Well, agricultural systems are incredibly complex. The decisions that we need to make, or increasingly, you know, we're having machine assistance making, are fuzzy problems. We see interactions that you know, have never appeared in any training sets. And to have like one critical piece of data, which is your location, to be something reliable is incredibly powerful. And I think people who come from other areas of automation underappreciate how well mapping in agriculture works. And very often, you know, machines that are automated out in roadways or other spaces are localized using LIDAR or cameras rather than the primary positioning being through GPS. It works incredibly well in ag.
0: Yeah, and then maybe a comment I'll make is I remember the early days of GPS, the first place that we started being adopted in a large scale was in harvesting, right? Marrying it together with a your yield monitoring, knowing that this part of your farm is yielding more, this part of your farm is yielding less. So therefore next year, I need to put more seed, more fertilizer here, less there. It just is so insightful. That created a grassroots type of adoption and pool And then we've gone from there to using it for guidance, for navigation, for section control, for turning on and turning off around waterways, around other passages, around headlands. It has the amount of technology that there is in a modern-day farmer. It's incredibly, and as you were saying, something that's not appreciated for somebody that hasn't been in a farm lately. A lot of it is underpinned by GPS. And maybe one thing I'll say, Clay, is that I as strongly as I feel about GPS, I think we're in the midst of another big revolution, which is sight, which is cameras bring this same level of insight, of new insight of things that you couldn't do until you have that.
1: So uh, this is particularly interesting to us for our operations and the farmers that we work with. And, and I want to get there very soon. But before we do that, I think we have a number of entrepreneurs who will be listening to this and you know wanting to know, at the time you and Clay were collaborating, you were with Trimble at the time, a growth technology company out here in Silicon Valley, but relatively speaking, large company. What was the moment that you decided you wanted to step out of that a bit of the comfort zone there and into the world of the uh, startup entrepreneur?
0: Thank you for that question. I had been pretty successful at Trimble. I ended up uh, working 15 years at Trimble. I joined as an engineer and probably the first 12 or so. I was uh, working through the ranks from individual contributor to manager to the director of the entire agriculture division for engineering for Trimble and saw a lot of changes. And them. Um, also after about again 12 years in engineering started moving more towards the business side of things started with M&A and was happy to participate in the acquisition of four different companies for Trimble during that process met the entrepreneurs that were making it happen right and I decided that hey these guys are having this way too much fun and when they do it well they're being even acquired and having a happy life post acquisition Anyhow, I realized that and as I continued my career at Trimble, I started getting more and more intrigued by that idea. In addition to that, my father is an entrepreneur, so it is something that I had seen and I've seen my father also have a lot of fun doing. And so I was quite intrigued. I continued to work at Trimble for a few years after the acquisitions. One of the things I had to do is put together the acquisitions we had done into a cohesive precision agriculture offering back when precision agriculture was a new thing. This was in the early 2000s, 2005, 6, 7, 8, right? So it was a lot of fun putting that together. And I decided I wanted to get more into the business side of things. I had been learning by doing, but I decided that taking a break and going back to school was the right move for me. So I went back to Stanford. I had originally studied engineering at Stanford my master's at Stanford, and I went back for an MBA at Stanford, an executive MBA. And probably that, Eric, is exactly where it gelled, where I had a little bit of time off from work to go and reflect on what I want to do with my career. Do I want to return to the same? Do I want to do more engineering? Do I want to do more business? Do I want to do something different? And taking a little bit of a break from your career to think just allowed me to make that decision.
1: That's great. That's something that I've seen from a number of people coming out of the Sloan program at Stanford. They go in sort of sponsored by their company, and then they have an epiphany while they're there and the time to think that through. And I know many folks who went in thinking they were learning and going back to their original career only to make a pretty significant change. So you're in good company there. That's
0: exactly what happened to me. Maybe I'll tell you something on the personal side. Found a really good idea with a lot of new technology, machine learning that was happening. Found some people that were great to join me, including my co founder, right, that was uh, studying his PhD in robotics and this great idea on how to use it into agriculture. And it was a pretty big decision, right, on should I go back to what I know, right, go back to Trimble to working in a large company, or do I go and start a company where I don't have any money yet, right? I was just starting to figure out if there were people that were going to give me money. So I didn't, no money. My wife at that time was pregnant with my second child, my daughter, right? So conversation and the family plays a very big role in this type of decisions, right? And I had been a year without receiving any pay because I had taken a leave of absence. And not only that, but if I chose to not go back to Trimble, I had to pay back the loan they had given me to pay for my studies. So I was starting in the hole. And by the way, I know it might sound a little bit dramatic, right? but on all this things stacked against this entrepreneur, but when I talk with entrepreneurs, it's almost always the same. But many entrepreneurs have this awesome set of experiences that make them have some awesome alternatives. And usually, starting a company is not the easy, it's not the only path. In some cases, it's super rewarding, but not always. So it's not an easy decision.
2: I can remember you were starting Blue River about the same time we were starting Fall Line. And... One day I said to Scott and Baptiste and Eric, Hey, let's go visit my friend Jorge. He's got a startup. And we went into this little garage and you were there with Lee. And I had met Lee before. He was pretty quiet and he was just kind of standing in the corner, just kind of looking at the corner. And I didn't know, was he depressed or what's going on? He's just a deep thinker. He's a deep thinker is what was going on. I didn't pick up on that right away. And I remember when we left, there was just this kind of silence in the car, like the fragility of a startup, like... You know, you see some companies now that get seated with, you know, a good cushion and have some resources to throw around, and the entrepreneur is, is not at a ton of risk. But I can remember looking at you there. You really went out on a limb <laughs> and it's yeah. worked out. It's worked out all right.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm so happy I did it. The financial crisis had just hit. This was early 2011, and the funding climate was just very, very different from what it is today.
1: Yeah, and to be clear, at Fall Line we make a lot of mistakes. It's part of the job. But, you know, when you have at least two or three bites at the apple and you miss on all three relative to investing in Blue River. Sometimes you just got to kick yourself for that. But we have known you and had a great relationship with you. You know, Clay, obviously going way back before Fall Line, you know, myself starting Fall Line with Clay right around that same time frame as when I met you. One of our big regrets is not actually being one of your investors, but appreciate the fact that we've been able to collaborate and you've been to our summits with our farmers over the years and been a great advisor to us as we've been building our business. So, we're very pleased to have you in our orbit. I appreciate the relationship. It's been two ways. I've been,
0: I remember meeting with both of you guys while building the river and now as part of John Deere. And it's been great advice. You guys come from this, again, deep understanding of what is happening on the technology, on the farm, and the adoption,
2: what is valuable. And it's been a great partnership. Thank you. And I think that's something that we share because, you know, you've definitely spent your time in the trenches. You come from an engineering background, I come from an an engineering background, and there are just things that, because of the complexity of the field environment that you would know are things you need to take into consideration in designs and engineering that you wouldn't if you were just in the office. One of the things that is interesting to me is farm operations become more and more dependent on... Farm machinery is the machinery has become a bigger part of the capitalization of a farm, become more dominant. That the farmers really, in many cases, adapt the farm to the machinery instead of the machinery to the farm. And I see that in a lot of different ways. You know, if you've got, you know, a farmer doesn't want to have any gully erosion, no farmer should be unconcerned about that. But, you know, when machinery was smaller and tires were smaller and it was a problem for machinery, the sensitivity is much higher. As if somebody's got machines on tracks or large tires, you see the tolerance completely change. Like it actually has to do with whether or not the machine can get over it determines whether or not it's a problem. And, you know, another example is, you know, we see large self-propelled sprayers or, you know, primary means of weed control in commodity row crops. And in parts of the country where people have vegetated, you know, grassed waterways and farm in beds, unless you have high resolution section control on the sprayer, as you come up to one of these grass waterways, you either leave you know, a wedge of weeds or you spray through it and kill the whole thing. And traditionally, most of those sprayers people have still don't have high enough section control to avoid outlining. In those parts of the country, they just spray through them. So you have this kind of, the limitations of the machinery will become like just embedded farming limitations. And that's, I don't think, the case for the best farmers. We really value having guys who don't just accept drop-in solutions for everything, but who will innovate and adapt, design, build, fundamentally change what they do to you know, get the results that we need on the farm. You know, I think increasingly, you know, a lot of what you're working on now, I think we're at an inflection point in ag, where I think you're going to open up some new machine forms and new things that are really going to change what those limitations are.
0: Yeah, that's exactly true, right? So that's now what I'm working. So Maybe just to catch you up from where we were from those early days that I was talking, we were able to prove our product in lettuce and then on cotton, this ability to spray only the weeds. And we do that by using cameras that have the ability to see weeds and spray only the weeds and not spray the rest of the crop. And that's been incredibly valuable. That led to the acquisition of Blue River by John Deere. And that happened in Blue River, we started in 2011. The acquisition of Blue River by John Deere was in 2017. And just this last year, I've become the Vice President of Autonomy and Automation in John Deere. And one of my roles as Vice President of Autonomy and Automation is to think about that, about what we can do better. And I would put it into three categories. Things that we can make the machine do better, right? Like, for example, CN Spray, spraying every weed and not the crops is one way in which we make the machine better. We call it see and act, that in the more generic case, that because we see something and we act differentially based on what we're seeing. Yeah, And that works not only in sprayers, but also in planters and harvesters and across the board. Then we have autonomy, which is making machines driverless, which is on top of automation. And the third area is thinking about new form factors that we can unlock because now you can make the machine autonomous. Does the machine need a cab, right? And if you don't need a cab, can it become smaller, right? And can it operate day and night? So does it need to be of the same size? Can it cost less compaction? Can it be able to do things in a way, and a scale, and a manner that is different? So the three areas are making the machine better, making the machine driverless, thinking about whether the machine
2: can change. Yeah, and that is something that there's literally not been a single area within farm machinery where I can see that we've turned the corner towards that trend of being lighter yet compaction. It's just shocking. This remains as not just an existing problem, but growing, you know, we've gone tractors, you know, over the last, you know, two generations have gone from 10,000 pounds to 20, 30, 40, 50, 60,000 pounds. You know, the 4,700 sprayer was 16,000 pounds. And then, the, you know, 4,900 came out at, you know, 35,000 pounds. And, you know, 40,000 pound sprayers are pretty common now. And grain carts have gone up to 2,000 bushels, 2,500 bushels. Everything's heavier, And people aren't doing controlled traffic or kind of other high-tech methods for managing this on a large scale. And so, you know, I think the damage from the machinery of the fields has continued to go up despite all these innovations. I think you're really at a turning point, I think that there's an opportunity to finally kind of change course, which people have been expecting for you know 20 years. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Machines have been
0: getting bigger and heavier as a way of making human labor be more effective, right? One person with a bigger sprayer that has now... 120 feet booms are very common. Just a few years ago, it was 90 feet. Just a few yep. years ago, it was 60 feet, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, things have been going bigger. The, Combines are now bigger. That means that you can do more, right? With 120 feet wide, boom, you can cover a lot more ground and achieve economies of scale. One person does more, but autonomy breaks that paradigm. Now, if human labor is not the limiting factor, then how would you do it, right? So we've been paying for this efficiency in different ways. Farms have been getting bigger. There's been, I don't know, more compaction, heavier machines. There's an interesting interview by John Deere's uh, CEO, John May, who was saying that the era of bigger, faster, stronger is coming to an end, which is very interesting to hear him say it, right? Because it's been basically the strategy of John Deere and every single machinery manufacturer is to make machines bigger, faster, and stronger. And instead, the era that is coming is one of more automated, more autonomous, and easier to use, right? So it's things around technology, things about data connectivity, things about capabilities that are going to be dominating the next decades.
1: Lots to unpack there, Jorge. But one thing in particular I'm curious about, you mentioned the advent of autonomy. So can we get the humans out of the cab and then therefore do we not need the cab? One of the things that we've seen in a number of the robotics companies we've come across in our travels is moving toward autonomy, taking the human out of the cab, but it's not quite fully autonomous yet, cannot be left to its own devices just yet. And so now what you've done is taken the human and make him walk behind the darn machine all day. So you've actually made that human less scalable and a lot less comfortable. What are the stumbling blocks? What are the hurdles that you need to get over before we actually see autonomous vehicles being able to be sort of tendered or managed from afar? We would expect that that would happen potentially sooner in ag than in, you know, road vehicles. But maybe not because the terrain is so different. So talk a little bit about the hurdles yet to overcome on the autonomy side.
0: Yeah, it's a road that has been started there. And we've announced in the last CES, at the beginning of this year, a fully autonomous tractor that does tillage, right? So the road we decided to take at deer is, let's find the easiest to make autonomous operation that we can. And we decided on tillage. And not only on tillage, but we decided on tillage in a certain geographical area. Right in I said to start with soybean stubble, right? So after you've harvested your soybeans, the stubble of soybeans is much easier to deal than the stubble from other crops like corn, right? So it doesn't obstruct your view at all. Very clean fields. We decided to restrict it as much as we could. We started working in the upper Midwest only, where labor is for sure a big problem, but the tillage is done in fall, right? Because you when it's time to plant, you just need to go and plant. You don't have time to be doing much tillage for the majority of people. So tillage gets done in fall, but the land is still pre-humid, so it's not too much dust. And we decided to select for geography, for crop, for operation, the easiest we can find to take our first step. Within that constrained environment, we have our first fully autonomous machine that this year we're testing with several customers, with over 10 customers in their farms they're going to be using a fully autonomous tractor themselves. Fully autonomous in the context of this means you take the tractor to the field, you leave it in the corner, you get out of the tractor, you take your phone and you swipe right and the tractor just goes and fills the field. And you get back into your car and you go and do something else. You go and, I don't know, drive your combine, go to your grain elevator to make sure that, that your grain elevator is working well. You. I don't know, go to sleep. Sometimes many farmers go and till at night and that means they cannot be with their family at night or they cut into the sleeping during this period of the year. So it's fully autonomous. It is geographically, crop-wise, and application constraint. So the next step that you're going to be seeing is all those constraints being loosened, right? So we'll go to other crops, we'll go to other seasons, we're going to go to other geographies, we're going to go to other applications and it's going to be a long road. But I think it's pretty cool that we are able to do that. And I'm incredibly proud that a company like John Deere, which is a large company, is pioneering in this area because you see the companies that are starting to play usually with autonomy are these startups. For whatever reason, startups have been leading the way and charging the path. So when I see people thinking about this type of problems, it's a bunch of little startups and John Deere right so it's like one of these games which one of these pieces doesn't belong with the others right it's pretty incredible that John Deere has the commitment and decided hey we're going to go and leave this space
2: i think one of the fun things for me and just thinking about that problem is that you know in my experience and, and all the guys on our team who farm have you know thousands of times in our lives gotten out to repair a piece of machinery adjust a piece of machinery so all of those things that from an autonomy standpoint, we would think of as just being interventions are often not tracked and recorded that much. Now, as you're working on autonomy, it brings kind of a hyper focus to that. So I imagine that you see a lot of opportunities to improve the machinery to make it, like reduce interventions, because it's a necessary part of getting there.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true too. So a part of autonomy is also what we call job quality, right? So you need to make sure that the machine is, A, observable, that the farmer see what the machine is doing, right? You can look at the, the job that is being done, but also you need to be able to alert the farmer when there's something that is not allowing you to do the job, right? So for example, the tillage tool plugs is what it's called. When it's stubble, it starts accumulating and you start, instead of going with your plow through the field, you start getting this big pile of dirt and stubble accumulating in the field and you start pushing it. We need to be able to detect that. We need to be able to figure out Even if we can detect it early, are there things that we can do, like lift it a little bit to see if we can avoid the plug, if we can unplug it? We need to detect if, uh, I don't know, if a tire blows in the implement, should we stop if one of the shoes breaks? Anyhow, we need to detect all the problems. And as part of that, you're absolutely right. That's going to mean that we make better implements because we need to
2: make implements that don't blow the tires, that don't plug as easily, that don't break. Another, I think, fun part of the using computer vision and autonomy is in doing the training, there are certain times where you can just kind of label things as being an abnormality that you stop for. And other times that you try to, something's important or specific enough that you try to build some structural knowledge into the code. I think plugging is such a major and persistent problem intelligent. I imagine that that's an area of focus. And broadly, like if you hook a fence and you're dragging something, you know, you want to stop. So, I think identifying anything that's being pulled with a machine that's not part of the machine is a problem. I imagine you don't want to go into a lake. So, you know, identifying water would be a particular area. I imagine a lot of that is proprietary. Is there anything interesting that you can talk about that you kind of work on from a, you know, really creating structural, what we would think of as being common sense into the machine?
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So the way our autonomous machine works is we're using stereo pairs. The two cameras mounted at a fixed distance. And we can see not only the red, green, and blue pixels, but because we have two cameras, we're able to calculate the depth using this, what is called a parallax angle, which is like how humans sense depth. So we are able to do that. And we have six pairs of these just mounted all over the vehicle, looking at 360 degrees. And then what we do with these four data points, red, green, blue, and depth, for every single pixel that we're seeing is we send those into a neural network and we identify what it is that we're seeing. So instead of just having an image, we now start what is called classifying, figuring out, okay, this is what we call navigable terrain, this is an obstacle, this is sky, these are trees, and we have different things that we look for, and this is a human. Right. And we have different obstacle types, and we take every single pixel in an image and we put it in one of this, I'll call it one of these different colors, one of these different categories. Right. And we can see that. And one of the interesting cases is this we call it obstacle, right? Large obstacle, right? Which is if we find something that is not navigable, not a human, not a tree, then that is something that is far away in the horizon then you are an obstacle. And we have been testing it for what is called its ability to generalize, right? So we don't need to just detect one type of obstacle, right? We need to detect the long tail of all the obstacles you can have in a field. And that is a very long tail. There's a lot of things that can be in the field. It can be a, I don't know, a trash bag that has blown from the road. It can be a fallen branch. It can be a water. It can be, a, <laughs> we found once a, uh, sign, a sign that had fallen from the highway. It can be a fence. It can be an irrigation pipe. Anyhow, It can be a number of things. There's anything. It can be a dog. It can be a number of things that somehow get into a farm, a dead animal. And we've been testing our system for that long tail. And the only way you can get that long tail is by equipping lots of tractors with cameras. And we've been doing this now for years equipping tractors with cameras, with stereo pairs and going to fields and driving many, many acres, with a human driving it, right, initially, right? But just being in acres and acres and acres, and not just in one location, but in many locations. And even though I was telling you we're limited, for example, geographically into the upper northwest, we're already working in all over the world in collecting data. And that happens years before you can go and release the product into the field and Big part of that recent place, exactly what you were starting to put your finger on, which is this long tail of large obstacles that you should be able to recognize and classify and stop for and then ask the farmer, Hey, I found this large obstacle in front of me, right? Why don't you look at it and decide what you do? So what we would do in that case is we send the farmer a picture of what the tractor is seeing. And it has, I don't know, a street sign or an advertising sign that has blown into a field. And we ask the farmer... Hey, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to go around it? Should I wait for you and you're going to come and remove it? Or here's water that I'm seeing in front of me. What do I do? Do you want me to go around? Do you want me to wait? Do you want me to stop with this field and go to somewhere else? All this gets communicated to the farmer via cell phone and the farmer is in control and
1: can decide what's to do. I'm curious, if you calibrate the difficulty of getting that generalized obstacle set and all the other elements of autonomy to a level where you are comfortable releasing commercial machines to do the early tillage passes, and then eventually to be much more generalized across a number of different farming environments, if you compare that task relative to what the automotive manufacturers are trying to do, I see two sort of countervailing Factors. On the one hand, I would imagine that the permutations across city streets and highways across the United States, let's say, is off the charts, probably more complex. However, at least out here in California, we see Waymo vehicles outfitted with cameras and all these other companies that are trying to go after this gathering data at a level of volume that is just off the charts, not to mention what they're already capturing from the vehicle fleet that they have out there with whatever sensors are already in current cars. And I compare that to how many tractors can you put out there with your camera pairs on? You know, it's got to be a tiny fraction by comparison. So when you look at those two factors, many more permutations, but a higher volume of data capture relative to what you're doing in ag, who's going to get there first?
0: Yeah, ag is going to win. We're going to win. This ability to self drive commercially in a generalized way. It's already happening in the Midwest this year. We're in many fields and farms being operated with a farmer outside the cab, right? With a farmer, not in the field. I know Waymo is doing some things and testing with their taxi service in a limited geographic area in Arizona. And anyhow, I give them a lot of credit, but I think that the problem is has a lot of advantages in agriculture. Probably the biggest advantage, Eric, is the ability to stop, right? If you see something in the highway, right, and it's, I don't know, fallen sign, what do you do? Do you slam on the brakes? Or do you try to go around it? If you slam in the brakes, the guy behind you is, I don't know, he's going to slam into you. You can be pretty bad accident. If you're wrong, especially, and it wasn't a sign, but it was just a shadow and you somehow got it wrong and you slam in the brakes, then you can cause a big accident. Anyhow, there's other drivers in the farm. If you stop, there's nobody else in the field. Well, it's one of the requirements we have. If we see something in the field, we stop. So That means that we don't even start. There's something that we see in the field. So nobody's going to rear-end you when you're doing tillage. You can stop and ask for help, right? I'm seeing this. What do I do? Obviously, you cannot be doing that too much. You need to be only doing it for the things that are real, I mean, where real intervention is needed. So you need to also do it correctly. But this ability to stop is huge. But then on top of that, there's no street signs. There is no, I don't know, pedestrians. There's no other drivers. There's no stop signs. Fields are different in different areas, but they're not as different as the environment you find in the generalized on-highway driving. It is a big advantage, and we will be in more locations sooner
2: than the generalized self driving in cars. I want to turn attention to weeds a little bit. Autonomy is fun, but I think in terms of pressing problems, weeds are higher on the list. And really, I think the most widespread issue in agriculture, no matter where you farm, weeds are a problem. But it, you know, I would highlight that it's a changing problem that when Roundup Ready first came out, somebody could do one or two applications fairly early in the year and the field would be clean at harvest. And not only did we, of course, develop resistance, but there's also been this steady march of plants to weeds have been emerging later and later, a broader emergence window. And, you know, we have seen now throughout the Midwest, you know, hemp coming up in the middle of the growing season, late in the growing season and, you know, adapted to come up through a plant canopy. And we simply didn't have that pressure 20 years ago. As we look at kind of that massive rise of weed problems since resistance developed in Roundup, the dicambin 2,4-D beans changed the course, dropped us down to a system that added more cost and more chemical, but looked clean, looked like it was working again. You know, we saw two years ago, some of the early reports of resistant weeds, a few more this year. I'm seeing in the field a huge amount of weeds around the countryside that get knocked down, twisted up, that are now standing back up as we're getting close to harvest and are full of seeds. I expect that there will be widespread infestations of oxen-resistant weeds next year. And this will be such a growing problem. My expectation is that we're only a few years away from having the kind of loss of efficacy like we saw in Roundup. Other methods of weed control are clearly needed. I think certainly one of the things that you and your team think about with an advantage of seed Spray is the advantage not only of being more targeted on the weeds, but not hitting the crop everywhere. So it starts to open up other possibilities. Yeah,
0: that's right. Weeds are a tremendous problem and they're getting worse every single year and every solution we've been able to come up with in the chemistry side, weeds have adapted as a human species, we've been trying to kill wheat for 10,000 years or since we started agriculture. And guess what? We're still trying to do that and not getting any closer. Weeds adapt. The journey that we have in CN spray which is the name of the product we've released this year, CN spray in particular CN spray Ultimate, is very long. And we've started also with the first use case this year, already released. But there's a long list of features that we want to add and we will be adding over the years. Let me give you some examples. Right now, we have two tanks, meaning the ability to spray two materials at the same time that have different chemistry. For example, you can put a residual chemical that goes to the ground, gets applied in a broadcast way everywhere, and a select chemical that goes only to the weeds. So you can control the weeds that have emerged, but also prevent new weeds from coming out. And for right now, there's less resistance to these chemicals that are sold applied, that are residual controlling the weeds. So that's one of the things that we already are launching. But we have other ideas. We have this idea of, hey, since we have two tanks, how about trying to put two different chemistries in a sea and spray way, right? If you see this type of weed, then let's knock it out with something hard that we know is not resistant. If you see something else, then just let's use the, I don't know, generic chemistry. But if you see, I don't know, a palmer amaranth, right? Let's hit it with something. And it's okay if it also damages the crop. Because I don't want that weed there because that Palmer Amaranth is going to produce hundreds of thousands or million seeds next year. And I'm going to have a going to go from one small problem to a big problem. So I'm okay if I lose that, I don't know, three feet by three feet area where that weed was because I'm preventing a very large problem. But if it's not Palmer Amaranth, if I see any other weed that I know it's not resistant, then let's just put my regular chemistry, my chemistry that I have a trait for in my crop and it's not going to be damaging my crop, right? If I see a grass, that's fine. Let's just use my regular chemistry that I have a trade on in my crop. But if I see these weeds that I don't like, we can spray something that is much more aggressive. That is in our roadmap. That is the direction we're going to be moving towards and we have a number of other tricks down our sleeve, making that area of spray smaller, for example, is something we're going to be doing it. So if you have to, again, spray a chemistry that is more aggressive, you just spray it in a smaller area every time. So that's also going to be helpful. And we have other tricks that we're coming off.
2: Okay. I'm curious, as I think about that type of solution, where the more targeted you are on the weed, the more kind of tolerant of some little bit of drift you would have on the or off-target application onto the crop. What are the regulatory implications of that? You know, chemicals have to be applied within a label. And so, you know, in theory, you could apply to a 200-acre field at you know, if the label allows a 10-ounce rate, you'd go to a 10-ounce rate. But if you hit something the size of a dining room table with a 12-ounce rate, that'd be illegal because you'd be outside yeah, a label. Hurt. So is that something that your team is putting effort into, engaging with regulators on that?
0: yeah, we're for sure engaging in regulators and also very importantly with chemical companies, right with companies that create these chemistries that are good for these things. An example is paraquat, right? Paraquat is this chemistry that has very little resistance, basically kills any plant within reason, but if you put it on top of your crop, you kill the crop. So you can still apply it to the label, right? Paraquat is normally used just in a pre-emergent situation. So for that matter, using any other burn down chemistry that you use before the crop has started so you don't need to increase the label necessarily you change chemistry and there's a lot of things that our team is doing engaging with the chemical companies with the pest control industry and on top of that working also with regulators on what it is that we can do right when you're not applying chemistry a lot of regulations have been written with the idea that you're applying it in a broadcast way and for every acre you're applying it in the entire acre but hey if instead of applying it in the entire acre i'm only applying it in 1% of the acre what is the appropriate limit to be using for that, right? It's obviously the less area you apply it over, the less risk that this will get into, I don't know, waterways or into unintended locations.
2: Yeah, yeah, precisely. An example that we're seeing that kind of fits your generalization there is resistant annual ryegrass in Louisiana has come in as a big problem. It's been known in other parts of the world as a big problem for a long time. And it's very early in the season. It would be a post-emergence, but an early post-emergence. Paraquat would be very effective against it. And it's a perfect application of CN Spray, you know, but it would be just outside the label. So having that variance to be able to treat that is definitely an improvement to broadcasting. Yeah, yeah. Agreed.
0: We're hiring agronomists for sure. And we're starting to build our team. It's not just engineering, but it's understanding the plants. It's going to be important, especially as we start looking and maybe just to continue on that theme of things on the CN Spray pipeline, we have this plants to also help apply other chemistries that get applied to the sprayer in addition to herbicides, right? Moving one day to uh, fungicides and insecticides and being able to detect them and apply them in a selective way. So instead of broadcasting them, and as you know, insects is one of these areas that where there's also a lot of uh, resistance that is happening and it's starting to be a much more problem. And there's certain areas like Brazil, for example, where insects and I don't know, fungus is, are just tremendously big problems. So I think that there's a lot of things
2: that we can do to continue to evolve that technology for the next few years. Yeah, like weeds, it's also very much evolving. 20 years ago, we didn't apply insecticides to you know, soybeans in the Midwest very much. And then aphids developed as a problem. More recently, Japanese beetles is a problem. And it's become kind of de rigueur. And yeah. you know, bringing an ability to be more on target, both increases efficacy and you know, reduces unintended effects. That's right. That's right. It's a lot more sustainable
0: and protects the world. I feel very really strongly and every farmer I talk with feels very strongly that this is the right way of doing it. Right? It's not just about coming and banning chemistries or coming and banning practices. It's more about using the practice in the right way. Let's spray where you have the infestation. Let's spray where you have the weed. It's a common sense approach that before we had this ability to see things, see them fast, recognize them fast, classify them fast. We didn't I was saying at the beginning, it's a game changer, this ability to
1: see and act in a differential way. Jorge, on that topic, processing power camera technology has, I would imagine, been one of the enablers, but also limitations to speed here. Where are we in that cycle? What do you see coming down the path to, you know, effectively the latency with which you can identify what it is you're looking at, and then ACT, how much is that you know, driven by the compute capability? And what do you see in the future here in the short term? Yeah, it's one of those
0: amazing things. Like Just like your computer every couple of years, just gets a lot faster. I remember when I had a computer that you couldn't play videos on it because it would be, I don't know, not fast enough. Now you can play videos have video calls. And, uh, and while you're doing this and that and that in your computer, things are just getting incredibly fast. We've been riding on the development of NVIDIA. We've had a good partnership with NVIDIA and they have a family of embedded processors, embedded GPUs. They call it graphical processing units. And they've been working really hard on them. It's the family is called the Jetson. And we started with their TX1, TX2 now, and now they're going to a new generation called the Orin which is eight times faster than the TX2, which was already something like six times faster than the TX1. And this has happened in the last four years, right? It's incredibly amazing how much faster things are going. We are already launching our CN Spray. Today can do 12 miles per hour. We already have in-test versions that allow us to go faster. The goal is to go as fast as a farmer goes, which in the Midwest, that's typically in the 12 to 18 miles per hour, depending on your size of the field. Our goal is to get there and beyond. We are already at the low end of that, but I don't know, pretty soon we're going to be chipping at it and getting as fast. Processor for sure, processing speed getting faster for sure helps. The other thing that is funny, but it is a limitation, is the time that a droplet takes to fly from the time it leaves the nozzle to when it hits the plant. Now it takes longer for that droplet, which goes really fast, right? You Are you pressurizing it and sending it down? It takes more time for that than it takes us to process an image to decide whether there's a weed or not,
1: which is anyhow, good things to have. If you think about that crossover point where the physics of the droplets became a limiter relative to the processing of the electrons. When did that happen? You know, if you say you started working on this in earnest in 2011, and here we are now, that's the limitation. When did that become the limitation?
0: That's a great question.
1: Maybe just to give you
0: a little bit of historical perspective, the first machine that we had working on this type of technology was in lettuce, and it went so slow that we had to buy a tractor that had what is called a creeper gear. This is a tractor that can go at sub one mile per hour. And we were so happy when we got to one mile per hour. That was a big milestone for us. And then it was three and then it was six. Anyhow, I remember talking about this with a VC that I was considering as for investing on. Hey, this is going to happen. Faster machines, you can bet on it, right? Yes, we're not fast enough, but it's you can bet on it. But anyhow, we've been getting faster and faster and faster. Betting on technology getting faster is, is an easy bet. With this release, we're testing, I should say, not the release we have right now, but we're currently releasing a product that goes at 12 miles per hour, right? But it, we're making changes so it can go faster. At 12 miles per hour, still the longest time, piece of time is the processing. In the next one, we get is the first time where it's crossing over, where the longest time now is the droplet. And we can still continue to improve. We're officially at the point of diminishing returns until we change the physics of how we spray. We're going to, I don't know, be limited by how fast we can go.
2: Now, a little bit of that challenge is self-inflicted because you just don't want to stick the cameras out far in front of the boom like you could if you were being lazy about the mechanics of it.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's right. If you don't have to fold the booms and you're okay with uh, driving the <laughs> booms open and... uh That's a funny story. But we tried that with how complicated would it get to fold a boom that had cameras that were ahead of them. And we started playing with that idea, Clay, as you can imagine. I can tell you it gets really complicated. What we are doing is our cameras are angled forward. And even though they are more or less on top of the boom, they are angled forward and they look forward. So that's how we get around it. But the ideal thing would be to have a little arm that comes from the boom and it's looking down. I think you can do that for small machines. That's a good way of changing the physics of the problem to give you more time so you can turn the spray nozzle with more anticipation.
2: The European Commission recently released a plan for reducing herbicide use in half. This seems like a pretty obvious play for and Spray. Do you see a lot of excitement in Europe? We haven't really talked about that market in particular. I think that and Spray is
0: the only way that they can do it. I think that there are some idealistic people that are, I don't know, I applaud them for trying, but Trying to feed 8 billion, 9 billion, 10 billion people without the use of all the tools that give us scale, including chemistry, is going to be a big challenge. So the only way you can do it, in my opinion, is to use all the tools at your disposal. And one of those tools is continuing to use spraying, continuing to use chemistry, but let's use it in a more rational way, and a more directed way. We're seeing a tremendous amount of pull for the technology worldwide right? And we're starting in the U.S., but our plan is to bring this technology really quickly worldwide. And there's different reasons for them. One of them is the economics, right? Having the economics to the farmer is really good. Straying less means good. But there's also this environmental impact. It's another big reason to do it. And the regulations are the ones that are driving. It's consumers of food that are pushing on their regulation and regulators acting. I think that farming as you know, it's not well understood and what farmers do or what farmers need to do is not well understood. And sometimes it's, yeah, sure, just spray less, right? But hey, how do you do that? So anyhow, I think that there is this technology of C&Spray aligns the interest of consumers, of all of us, and sustainability really well with what is possible.
1: That's terrific. And Maybe a couple final questions in leveraging the experience set that you've had now, having been in large companies, having started your own company, taken it all the way through the cycle, having been on the acquirer side of MA transactions, on the acquiree side of that. What advice would you give to startup CEOs who are thinking about, you know, particularly in this kind of environment where capital raising is tricky for now? It's not always gonna be like this, but you know, I think people are considering options, strategic options. We would expect that in this market of consolidated large ag companies that we would expect to see an increase potentially in acquisitions going forward as they look to bring in innovation into larger entities. What advice do you have for entrepreneurs playing in that marketplace? You know, are there things that they should be doing or not doing as they think about strategic alternatives? Advice that you would have given to yourself prior to the acquisition of Blue River. Great question. Several. Let me start by
0: saying that being an entrepreneur is not about making money. That's a question I ask to entrepreneurs that I meet, right? And if they're doing it for the money, boy, you're making the wrong bet. That's not the reason. Yes, sure. There's plenty of successful entrepreneurs. And yes, when you're successful, the money is there. But don't do it for the money because it's just a hard road. I think it has to be about following your passion. If you want to do something and you see a possibility that doesn't exist. They call it that's an itch that you get, right? You know that something can be done. And when you have that, that's the reason, motivation to have it. You find that in yourself and you find that in a good business and a market that will support the investment that you're going to need. That is the reason why to go and start a company. When you see that you have a vision that nobody else has and something unique that you can bring to the world, that is a much better reason. Another piece of advice is sometimes hard economic times are some of the best times to be starting a company. Nobody else is doing it, only the best ideas to get launched. As I was saying, I started in 2011. Of course, in 2009, there was a big financial crisis and it took a long while to get out of that one. In 2011, raising money was not easy. But it turned out that just at that time, it's also when machine learning was being created and scaling up to new possibilities. Right. So that meant that. Companies that started later in, I don't know, 14, 15, 16, when it got again easier to go and fundraise. That means that they are, I don't know, four years behind me and uh, companies that started in 2011 when it was hard to fundraise, but we were early into the technologies. So, anyhow, sometimes ironically, tough environments make for the best environments. I remember a saying that uh, calm seas, a good sea captain, don't make, right? So, I think there is something to be said. Don't abandon your dreams because of tough economic climates. Another piece of advice that I typically give to entrepreneurs is get good talent. Get good people. People that have the capability to help you scale company. Some of the people that will stick with you the most are the early people. They're going to be influencing the people you attract afterwards. If you don't have a tremendous amount of talent early on, you'll be hard-pressed to change that around. It's not something that can be delayed. Start with a good partner. If you can have a good co-founder, good co-founder helps, but it's your first Five, 10
1: hires that make or break your company. That's great. All excellent advice. Well, Jorge, thank you so much for taking time out to chat with us. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Jorge. No,
0: thank you guys for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. And again, appreciate your partnership and let's continue to be helping each other. I really have helped our journey.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fall Line Field Notes. We're your hosts, Eric O'Brien and Clay Mitchell.
2: If this episode piqued your interest and you'd like to learn more, please come visit our site at fall-line-capital.com slash fieldnotes.
1: There you can link to other podcast episodes and read some of the recent articles our team has produced about a host of topics across farming, technology, and the future of our food system.